Welcome everyone, I'm Kevin Miller and this is The Ziggler Show, inspired by the grandfather of inspiration himself, Zig Ziggler. Our focus here is you and your personal development. The way to have more tomorrow is to become more today. So we bring you the best of today's world influencers and their messages and discover how we can all apply new and classic methodologies of personal growth to our lives. In this episode, how to know exactly what to say in the moment. So here's a quote. The worst time to think about the thing you are going to say is in the moment you are saying it. That's what Phil M. Jones says. He's my guest in this show. Though we all know it's incredibly common to not think at all when we speak, we just blurt out whatever we think. Again, that's the norm. Success, however, comes from intentionality and training. As Zig Ziglar says, we are all in sales. Selling is influence. And when it is done from love, it is truly caring and connecting and serving someone. I mean, a speaker on stage with the most profound message ever will utterly fail the audience if they are not proficient in how to keep a crowd's attention and adeptly get a point across, right? Well, likewise, in any conversation, you can utterly fail if you do not know some basic strategies of communication. But the great news is you can almost always succeed if you're aware and prepared. Well, this show is about that. So Phil M. Jones, he's the author of the book, Exactly What to Say. And we also get into the message from his new book, Exactly When to Start. He is actually the author of five international best-selling books. He's done over 2,000 presentations in over 50 countries across five continents. He's an incredibly quote-worthy individual. Some of the quips I noted down include this, change your words, change your world. And I truly believe that. Here's another one. If you do not know why you are doing it, then why are you doing it? And we get into talking in some deep ways on that topic. We talked a good bit uh, about just the literal sales tactics as well. There's a chapter in the book. It's just incredible. And it talks about utilizing this concept or this statement, I should say, I'm not sure if it's for you, but, and as you'll hear in the show, you'll hear why that breaks down people's barriers and lets you get your pitch across in essence. And I, after hearing it, I literally edited a promotion of mine uh, after getting that message from Phil. Uh, you can look for Phil's books at Amazon or wherever you get books. Uh, you can actually even just type in Phil Jones exactly in your search engine. It's going to pull up all of his books. Really incredible stuff. You're going to hear about it right here. So I'll bring you Phil as soon as I share some great products and services that we've curated for you. Well, Phil, your three books, Exactly What to Say, Exactly How to Sell, and your latest, Exactly Where to Start at Face Value, are somewhat doing-focused. However, in Exactly Where to Start, you begin with a, a brief but poignant message on, and I'll say being. You share that those who have carved out, this is your quote, carved out their own destiny and are living as they desire and believe, they do three things very differently from other people. They feel think and act differently. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, is that the order that you put them in? Is that, was that specific or just a random order? Yeah, I, I think there's probably some debate about the first two. Yep. Is, it, is it feel and think or think and feel? Um, but I am a big believer that a, that a feeling drives a thought. I think that's a personal belief that I have is, you know, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable. Mm. Therefore I think something differently. Therefore I do something differently. And, and, and I think emotion is the heart of, of 
every given behavioral change in some way. It's like I don't feel right in my skin or I do feel like I want to feel differently. Everything starts with an emotion in some way. So I, yeah, I think, I think I did that order on consciously purpose. Well, and I, it's interesting. I, I ask out of personal curiosity because at first I thought I'm going to switch them and say we start with think and feel. But then I wasn't sure. I mean, this is the personal development world that we live in. And there's, you know, we got some holy grail questions. And there might be a double tap, up, tap on the feel, right? If I think back and, and, and analyze that point even further, is it, is it feel, think, feel, do? Like, is, is, is there a feel sandwich in there somewhere that the feeling drives the thought, the thought drives a new feeling, that new feeling drives a new action? Maybe, maybe that's it. I, I, that's interesting. I'll, I'll ruminate on that because this is what we care about. If you're sitting up there and you're talking to people and you're trying to influence them and yourself, uh, this is important to, I mean, we're all trying to figure this out. And if we're to model that same point, you know, maybe even thinking on this further, it's, it's almost a trifecta, right? That you can come out from any one of those points. You know, they, they all feed each other in some way. You know, an action drives a new feeling that drives a new uh, you know, thought process that drives a new emotion. That like, it, it, it all is feeding each other in any cocktail of order. I guess, is that there's perhaps not a right way of doing it. Just do those three things um, and make sure they end up in a new action. Yeah, well, I agree. Well, you're going to hear, I'm I'm hitting on you. In going through exactly where to start, I kept coming back to, with the things that you said, coming back to hitting at some of the roots of personal development. Uh, you know, in regards to, you talked about that, you said living as they desire. That is the part that always intrigues me. Why do some people inherently have a strong enough desire to do something different than the norm, to not go with the flow and to take action, usually an uncomfortable action, of course, and chart a new course. I mean, I've been dealing with this for myself my entire life for, you know, my audiences. And now I've got uh, young adult kids and we're talking about that as they talk about their desires and go, what is going to make that desire big enough? I, I don't have that answer. Uh, I would love to have that answer and put it in a book and deliver it to everybody. I'd probably make a billion dollars. But you know, in that, I mean, you are talking about, you talked, you brought it to us from a personal standpoint as people viewed you as being a self-made man and have carved out this uh, life from a desire. But obviously it takes that and you're dealing with people every single day. And I don't know, well, I'll ask you, I throw this at a lot of folks, you know, is there a catalyst that you see that finally gets that desire big enough for them to do that thing? That's ugh, a little uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I, I guess there probably is. And you know, people move for one of two reasons, right? They either move because they want to become more comfortable or they move because they're uncomfortable, right? They're the only two reasons that people largely make a difference in their life for one reason or another. And the catalyst that I see for my life and, and I've gone on to see reflecting many others time and time again is this acceptance to the fact that I'm uncomfortable. It's not getting to a point of uncomfortable that I'm that I'm like like paralyzed by which yeah. it's being honest enough to say I'm not where I would like to be yeah. is this doesn't feel like the right version of myself. That becomes the driver for change. If I look and say, well, okay, um, you know, I could live in a house three times the size that I do right now. I could have another few million dollars in the bank. I could help another you know, 10 billion people, whatever, whatever. That is all interesting to me. But the thing that makes me change the most is some form of thorn in my side, some form of discomfort and more often than not i'm the person to put the magnifying glass on it yeah. it's not waiting for somebody else to say hey hey look at that issue a challenge that you have with yourself it's the self-acceptance and the self-appraisal that says you're not good with that yeah. go fix it you um 
It's interesting on that. Well, talking about comfort and discomfort, I really appreciate the story that you shared 13 years ago, I guess it is where you had some big visions, you had some big dreams, you shared it with a group of people who you said were close to you and you yeah. received those words. My goodness, Phil, you're such a dreamer. I, I related to that uh, very well, but it wasn't necessarily in a positive tone. It was accompanied by a ripple of laughter from the group. And you didn't say, and I, I read this a couple of times and thought about it. You didn't say, oh man, that stung. You said it scarred me permanently. And right. Being where you are today, I would, you could have some expectation that, okay, now you've arrived, you know, to, to some degree, obviously a big level of success. And now that's something you can just look back and laugh at or whatever, just part of the journey. But you said it scarred me permanently. That's a present tense uh, mm -hmm. aspect. And uh, there's the fear that so many people have or the wounds that they already have. And I really wanted you to speak to why you wrote that. You said it didn't sting at the moment. You said it scarred me permanently. That's a big statement. Yeah, and I think just to add some color to the story to the listeners right now is, as I was sat around a, a dining table in the conservatory um, of some of my family at the time. Um, it was my ex-wife and my mother-in-law and some other some other kind of friends and family around, and I shared some of my big visions for the future. And you know, I want to go and achieve this, and I have plans to do that, and I have a desire to go and do this. And the response that came back was, "My goodness, Phil, you're such a dreamer." Right? Oh. That was that was the response that came to me, and it was said like it's a bad thing. And my realization real quick was, you know, you've got two types of people in this world. You've got people who are cheering you on and people who are holding you back. And then the only other type of people are people who are just nothing in between, right? Is, is I'm a big believer that somebody's either, you know, adding to your story or sabotaging your story. So the, the scar came that, that, that was really true is even sometimes the people that you think should be the ones that are helping you aren't necessarily the ones that are helping you. And I see this so often. And I was even having a conversation yesterday. So I've just launched a new book specifically for real estate. And my wife's saying to me like, oh, we got like five of our friends who are locally as real estate agents. And, you know, I told them about your book and they said, oh yeah, that's nice. Like, why aren't those people supporting you? And I'm like, well, sometimes it isn't the people who are closest to you that should be the ones who have the wind at your back, you know, most. And, and, and I go on to talk more about this and exactly where to start is, I think everybody in your life should have a job role, a job description, a purpose, have some form of role to play. And what I said to my wife on that scenario last night is, is those people are our friends. I don't need them to support my business. Their role in our life isn't for them to be able to say, hey, I love your book on real estate, even though I'm a real estate agent. I do not need their approval. I'm looking for to be able to help the, you know, the tens of thousands of people who've said that they need help with their word choices. And that's a real fun thing to find acceptance for is to say not everybody's at your back and nor should they be. Hmm. And that's where I got to even with what is, you know, now that ex family set of circumstances is they're not bad people. They're just on a different path. Yeah. They see the world differently and that doesn't make it right or wrong either. That doesn't mean that their way is the wrong way and my way is the right way. It just means that actually, if you're prepared to go on a long-term journey, you need to surround it by people who can at least see the same version of future as you do. Well, you hit, again, it brought me back to a route that I haven't looked at for a while for people as they're dealing with going along. I, I worked for so many years uh, working with thousands of people who were in traditional employment, wanting to move to self-employment. Yep. And getting into the personal dynamics of that and seeing the real 
uh, I, I didn't perceive it, I guess, initially as I started on that path of, of leading people, the social pressures. I grew up in an entrepreneurial home. I never knew anything different. Yeah. Everything I did was supported. So I was, uh, I thought, you know, it's probably akin to being born into royalty or something. It doesn't happen to that many people. That's not the norm. And those who are out there often are facing what you did there. And it's okay. So I'll go on in the book. You talked about that revelation that you were looking for their validation. Right. And, uh, and you, and I'll quote you said, most people cannot believe in something that is new, different, or unlike them. And again, man, you had me ruminating on, on this issue that we, Inherently, and I, I see so many things through the eyes of as a father uh, today, especially as I've got older kids now, that our kids, or so we, uh, from those who were influential to us, we tend to believe that those who know us well know what we're capable of. So when they don't support us there, that is a hard hurdle. Well, it brings us to saying, I have to have faith that I'm capable because I've seen myself. I haven't done what I'm talking about doing. So back then, I don't know what your exact dreams were, but you're talking about something big that you had not done yet. So there's no proof here. Nope. Here are those closest to you and they're going, oh, that's sweet, buddy. But I don't know. And it's really difficult. I mean, you're talking about a root, acute, tangible thing for us to look at and go, I have to believe in myself more than I have. And I can't expect those around me to. It really puts us in a lonely, hard place. I mean, again, we're at the root of personal development here to say, I have to jump out. Yeah. It, it, It also does something else though. It helps you make a very big realization that your success is all your fault. Like, like yeah. th- there is no obligation to any other person to provide you a leg up on the way. And if you if you lower your expectations of other people, it becomes remarkably liberating. Like, like if I decide instantaneously that I don't need the applause, approval, acceptance, you know, credibility boost of of, of hundreds of people around me. Well, then it just leaves this full responsibility laying on my shoulders that says, well, actually, as long as I believe I've got this, nobody else matters. You can move with way more freedom. Yeah. Not only that is, is you fail in the dark too, which is a really interesting thing, is if you can fail outside of the spotlight of all the people that love you most, then that too doesn't have the amplifying effect of the pain that could be attached to such failure if that failure is in public. So the second you you decide to take a lonely road for a while, you can learn a boatload of stuff. Yeah, and you can be real true to yourself as you go through that. That if you're brave enough to be able to self-assess, self-analyze, get back up again, and roll the dice, you can grow at quite a rapid rate. The desire to try and bring everybody in your arsenal with you um, could quite often slow you down. And, and it's so fun for me now, being kind of 13, 15 years past that point of struggle that it's only really now that certain members of my family are, are reaching out saying hey phil how, you know how can you help with blank blank and blank like the the distance between where i was and where i am now needed to grow to so much for the people closest to me to understand that now there is a difference in level of expertise now they've allowed themselves to reinvent their opinion or their perception of me right has taken you know 10 times longer than it took me to, to be able to decide that i was different myself Okay. So let me ask right there. So here you are with our, everybody has their group of family, friends, whatever their social group. And when you make that decision to go do something differently, I like the analogy of, you know, everybody's on the couch and you're the one that decides, you know what, I'm going to go for a run. This is different outside of the norm. And that's uncomfortable that there's go as you, so I'll ask you, as you look back now, what you just attested to 
is you gave, in essence, some of them permission now to do something greater for themselves. Are there some, however, that it further strained that and they've now kind of separated because it's uncomfortable for them, for them to see you as one of the flock go off and do something different. It makes it more acute that they haven't or won't. Um, I, I think short term, possibly. Yes. Okay. What I'm now trying to articulate is, is long time. No, okay. is, you know, we all have periods of our life and I, and I wouldn't attach an age to this, but there's been a period of everybody's life and it could be when they're 17, it could be when they're 57, where what we are is we're adolescent and immature. Right. And when you're adolescent and immature, what you're often looking at is you're looking at the outside world thinking it's not fair. And if you're looking at the outside world in any way thinking it's not fair, what you're not doing is taking personal responsibility. What that's then meant in my life is, is meant in, in earlier points in time, yeah, I'm guessing that there were family members and friend group that were like, what's that crazy kid doing? And, and looking at everything with a view of saying, well, let's actually, let's, let's separate from that. Yeah. Now that time has gone by and their maturity and their uh, level of self-awareness has grown over that time period, actually they can come back at it full circle. And more often than not, they go, good for you, buddy. Good for you. And, and, and thank you for what that's gone on to be able to prove to me. And, you know, those conversations go full circle, but that, that might take a decade or more for that to happen. Yeah. You can't expect that to happen in, in six months and sometimes not. Sometimes it is just, you know, you meet people for a reason, a season, a lifetime. Sometimes that season was good for a while and, and those people never come back together again in a true way. Well, and this is somewhat of, a, of an elementary question, but while we're on the topic and we've got tens of thousands of people listening, I want to bring it to light too. Do you now, are you more selective with who you share those big dreams with? I, I assume the circles yeah. you're in. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Short answer is... Um, until I'm crystal clear on them for myself, I feel no reason to be able to share them with others. Okay. Now, um, I have selective mastermind groups that I trust, that I'm prepared to show up and be vulnerable professionally. Um, I also, you know, I, I stopped sharing some big visions and goals with family members and social friend groups. I just, I just stopped and, you know, I don't want to get into some of those debates because that's not what those relationships are in my life for. You know, I, I actually want to, you know, when I'm having a barbecue at home with mum and dad and my brother and my sister and nieces and nephews and the kids and all there, I want to be Phil. Yeah. That's all I want to be. And I wrote a piece about this the other day that I've, I've developed two very distinct parts of my own personal persona is, is one is where the middle initial, the, the M shows up in my life, where I'm expected to always have the answers, fix everybody else's problems, be this person that can actually you know, solve just about anything in life, forever the optimist, always being you know, the, you know, somebody who's looking at a version of better. But then when I show up in my home life, I, I want to be Phil Jones. I want, I want my brother to tell me what's been happening at his school without me having to have a commentary on it. I want my sister to tell me the successes in her world, in her sales role, where without me needing to provide some form of consultation or coaching or analysis to it. I just want to be a brother. Um, you know, and same with mum and dad is, you know, I just want to show up and be the best son that I can be. I don't want to be like, hey, let me tell you what I'm doing next. Because that's one of the big risks on the quest for betterment is you always think I need to have something new and better on the horizon. And you end up feeling like your identity is, is, is validated by the fact that I'm always working on something big and new. Sometimes I just want to be present and, and not give a damn about the next big thing that I'm doing. However, when I show up in my business mastermind group, here I want to be saying, here's my three-year vision. Here's my five-year vision. Here's what I'm looking to do differently. 
when I come off stage, um, and I think Brené Brown brought a point up on this so much recently that, that, that talks to me is, is, is about who you take your feedback from. Yeah. Like if somebody isn't prepared to get in the arena, why is that somebody you're prepared to give any value in your life? So I, I, you know, I take notes on my speaking performances. I take notes on my consulting work from people who I admire. And I think, I can't even remember who said it. And I don't want to misquote it, but, but um, you know, is, is don't take feedback from somebody you wouldn't ask for advice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've become real good at, at being selective on a, what I'm working on and B who I want to help talk into that, that growth period. You are listening to the Ziggler show and I'm incredibly honored for that. If you have ever done something outside of the norm, have you received criticism as Phil did and possibly from someone very close to you? I'll tell you this. Most people have, again, who are doing something outside of the norm. And that is a hard reality. Like Phil said, it scarred him for life. Thank goodness, though. He went forward anyway, and it's a great call out for us to do so as well. Well, next up, Phil talks about who it is relevant to be sharing with, and I'm going to bring him right back after I bring you some products and services I think you'll find value in. I, I like how you just phrased it, and you did this uh, a little bit ago, as people have roles in your life because what you're talking about of kind of leaving the Phil, I like that the Phil M Jones, that persona and just being at the barbecue and being just you. I I realize I have more grown into that. I didn't conceptualize it in that. Here's a role where I'm not that guy. I'm not the, uh, I'm not the business guy. I'm not the speaker. I'm not the influencer. I'm just me, but I haven't thought about that. Even going through who are the people, that'd be a great exercise for folks to go through the folks that you know and give them that role. Who is somebody that you feel comfortable and it seems relevant to share those dreams, those desires, those, those pursuits. We see so many people doing it, right? They're asking for career advice from yeah. their mom who's never had yeah. a job in their life. Yes. Or they are asking for relationship advice from their best friend who's been divorced three times or, you know, like, like, in those very simple examples is you got to pick your squad. And even if you look around at the 20 people who are closest to you right now, the people you care about mostly, they're not all good for the same reason. Like in our life, we should build some form of organizational chart. And I know that sounds very, you know, tactical, strategic, analytical, but if you know who's for what in your life, you get so much more momentum. You build efficiencies and effectiveness within, within your days that is, is kind of awesome. And, and, you know, I have it now with buddies who I have on speed dial that, that they know when I'm calling them, they've probably got a pretty good idea what this is about. And, you know, in my world as a speaker, I, I live quite a lonely existence for, for a giant chunk of my life. When you're traveling as often as you are yeah. and staying in hotels by yourself, etc. It sounds like it's rock and roll, but in the truth, it can be, it can be pretty lonely. It can be, you, you can, you can find some sabotaging habits through that very, very easily. So, you know, I've selected three, four, five people in my life that have a similar kind of lifestyle. We hang out on the road. So if I get a text from one of those people at seven thirty, eight PM at night, that just says, yo, I know what that means. Yeah. I know that means that they're in a hotel somewhere on the back end of the gig and their energy's all mixed up because a second ago they were here and now they're here and their family are busy and they're, you know, and they're at the point of saying, well, do I have a FaceTime catch up with my buddy Phil or do I grab two drinks at the bar? Yeah. And, and, and it's those kind of decisions where you can surround yourself with people who can protect you from doing the thing that you know is not right. But actually, when your willpower is weak, you start to run in the wrong kind of direction. Well, there's a strong message you just brought through 
there. Uh, I, again, I want people to hear, I don't want them to miss what you said a moment ago though, that when you find yourself taking advice and I've seen this, I went through a period of time of working with some guys and just uh, kind of a happenstance thing, but working with some guys in their thirties who were trying to do something different, wanted to go. And as you said, they wanted to, they wanted to go chart their own course. And yet all three of them had come from families where dad was the breadwinner and he worked in the same job for like 30 to 40 years. And they're getting feedback from somebody who has no concept of going out and doing something different in this sense, starting their own business. And yet the influence, the power that had on them, because again, they perceive that this is somebody who has seen me and by proxy should know what I'm capable of. And they don't even know, they don't even know that the journey. Why why should they know what they're capable of? Why why should anybody else know what somebody else is capable of? Like you, you dive into some some old Zig quotes, etc., and, and and he'll often talk about the fact that people's success is often being created through the, the fact that somebody else saw more in them than somebody saw in themselves. Mm-hmm. Surely the counter of which is true. If you see more in yourself than what somebody else sees in you, doesn't that give you permission to be able to soar? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm I'm thinking through fathers. I, I hear my kids say things to this perspective, though, of that I know. I know them. I know what they're capable of. And, and it's great words. Uh, I think I'll be repeating those. Say, buddy, I do not know what you're no, no, None of us do. None of us know, right? Yeah. It is, is how many examples are in the world where children have outperformed the expectations of the parents? Yeah. You know, yeah. us believing as parents that what we have is the ability to be able to control our kids' destiny is, is, is pretty arrogant yeah. <laughs> in yeah. all senses of the word, right? Is, yeah. is, I think we should be pillars for possibility. I think that what we should become is, is champions for, for letting people know that the, the boundaries are often things that are created by ourselves or others. They don't truly exist. And, and those boundaries can be helpful, but we are more at risk of creating limiting self-beliefs in other people than we are in accelerating them towards greatness. So again, come bubbling back up to your books and Obviously, as, as I mentioned before we started this, and I'm going to have in the intro of this thing, talking about the book, exactly what to say. You have some, I think, just some brilliant, uh, tangible, tactful methodologies that we all would be, uh, been, anybody listening to this show is going to benefit from greatly at, at looking at. But your overall message uh, is a overall personal development message. Again, you it sounds like you find yourself a lot as a guy who has started his own business. He's done a lot of things. He's had, you've had great successes. You've authored these books and you see the difference between somebody doing that, charting their own course. And let's, I'll say going with the flow in essence, uh, as feeling, thinking and acting differently. We've talked about what I think is a primary root issue for those who want to do something different, but are struggling with it. And wanted to ask you, if we look at that and say, man, that there's one issue to deal with a a handicap. If you don't deal uh, appropriately with it, what would you put at the top of the list of some other primary handicaps? Again, you've got an audience, they want to do something, but they're struggling with these discomforts, these real life issues. So there's one. What does your social group say? What are the pressures you feel there? Any others that jump out primarily to you that you would say, hey, if you want to do something different and you're struggling with it, here, here's a couple, I don't know, discomforts, issues that I say you need to deal with up front. I, I know it's a I big question. Yeah, I'm going to sound biased on this and try and simplify it. And, okay, and, and it's probably my, my flagship piece of work is actually talks towards this point is I, I strongly believe that one of the biggest reasons that fail people fail to achieve the success that I know they're capable of in life is that they just don't ask for it. Right? They don't ask 
for the people to be able to empower the opportunities that they're looking for, whether that's asking your boss for a pay rise, whether it's asking your wife to be able to move to a new area because you don't feel comfortable where you're at, whether it's about you know asking a customer to be able to choose you, whether it's asking a supplier to reduce their pricing, whether it's you know asking for an invitation to dance. Like, I don't care what it is. I think people's lives are directly correlated, um, or the success in their life is directly correlated towards the number of times they ask for the things they want in life. The biggest reason that people fail to ask for the things that they want in life, I hear, is because they're fearful of rejection. Mm -hmm. Yet the irony in that statement is that we find rejection in every single day of our life from our loved ones, from you know our family members and our friends, and we're fine with it. But when what we see the other side of the ask is a prize, we become so fearful of object of rejection that we that we forget to ask. And I wrote exactly what to say for that purpose. Yeah. is to try and empower people with the skills because almost everybody listening into this uh, this episode right now, my guess has had a point in their life where there was a critical conversation where they could have asked for something, where that ask would have meant a, you know, a hugely compounding difference in their life. Whether it was the girl they wanted to marry, whether it was the job they wanted to get, whether it was the client they were looking to take on, whether it was another new piece of information, but in that moment they found themselves lost for words. Yeah. So they just didn't have the conversation. And in a world where everybody is getting so focused on the power of technology, artificial intelligence, and looking to be able to say, how do I, how do I automate and systemize success? There's me championing and waving a flag that says, hang on, you know, emotional intelligence, bravery, and courage are actually some of the things that have been more proven to be true through the centuries that have gone before us that have defined somebody else's success. Not how do I make it run faster if it's not running well in the first place. So the thing that more people could get focus on is to say, how do I improve the quality of my conversations daily? Yeah. And if what I can do is I can approach those conversations with more, um, more emotion, with more integrity, uh, with more empathy, with more courage, more understanding, then what we can do is we can probably figure more out. You know, we live in a world where everybody thinks somebody else has a difference of opinion of you and that everything else is an argument and that some people are right and some people are wrong where momentum happens is where everybody finds the parts they can agree upon. And these are more of the conversations that matter. And I think the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. Yeah. So we should probably look to better a change in their life. Who are the people they need to converse with? What are the things that they need to ask of those people? And what are the actions they're looking to be able to change? Yeah. Now, if they could figure those three things out, my guess is in seven days, they could have somewhere like 25 meaningful conversations that could change their destiny. That's what I was fishing for. And you just gave it to me. Thank you. I can, I'll walk <laughs> away now. That was, that was, we cap it, right? Seriously, that, that is what I perceived of you. And, uh, and thank you. Now you just mentioned something out of the book, exactly what to say. The worst time to figure out what to say is right there in the moment. And I want to hit that, but I still can't leave a couple things okay. from exactly where to start. And one of them is the, I'm going to paraphrase it. You laid out some perspectives again, in this aspect of here's somebody and here's where they want to go. They have a desire. They want to go a direction. And you talked about two ends of the spectrum. I'm going to actually, I'm just going to phrase this in a business idea. Somebody has okay. an idea of something that they want to do. And you said, uh, we end uh, there's, there's two distinct play. I, I'm going to say yeah, ends of the spectrum. One, we can go forward with blind optimism is what you said. The other is paralyzing fear. I'm a card carrying member of the blind optimism, maybe even worse. It was, it was arrogance, flat out, just arrogance. And, um, sometimes I lost my shirt and, and the rest of my clothing a couple times it, it worked out as well too. But 
on the other side, or I don't even know what's in the middle. The third option is what you bring out. And I wanted you to speak to that. And it was useful truth. And I want folks, if you have an idea that you are thinking about, that you are desiring to go towards, and you look at that in one side, you've seen people with blind optimism, you think they're idiots. And you've seen somebody over here with paralyzing fear. You go, well, that doesn't work either. What is a different option? And as you have done so well in your books that I've seen, you do have a knack for boiling it down to a simplistic, uh, understandable message uh, well, and that's what the testimonies are for your book and why they're doing it so well. So you pulled out a third option that is useful truth. Give a synopsis, share a synopsis of that. Um, well, let me hit it from, from a top level is, okay. is whenever I see somebody who does something brilliant, the first thing I don't say is, wow, right? Everybody else says, wow, look at that person doing the great things that they do. My first thing to jump to is how, mm-hmm. not wow. And I look to be able to unpack exactly how they go about being able to achieve that. I got a wonderful piece of advice from an early mentor of mine that says, if you're ever going to compare yourself to anybody, compare the whole of you to the whole of them, Hmm. which Hmm. is bordering on impossible, right? But what it starts you to be able to believe is like, okay, well, if that person is achieving all of that money and that they are achieving all of that fame and all of that fortune, what did it take them to be able to do that? Oh, let's look at their travel schedule. Let's look at their relationships. Let's look at what's happening with their health. Let's have a look at what the commitment it took in order to be able to achieve that. Oh, oh, I'm not prepared to sacrifice that. Therefore, I cannot have that same level of outcome. We live in a beautiful period of time right now in our life where just about anything you could imagine to be done has already been done before. There aren't really any new ideas. And even those that are revolutionary and new ideas have a sister idea that's three degrees to the left of it that you can Mm -hmm. learn a great deal from. We also have information at our fingertips that is so abundant, it can often become overwhelming. But if we were looking towards what useful truth might look like in any given new business venture, is is if it doesn't work on paper, firstly, it's never going to work on reality. So, so, So why don't you map it out? And this is what I hear so often, right? I hear so many people at a bar while I travel or while I'm waiting at an airport, et cetera, they say, you know, oh, I had this great idea that I nearly did this with, or, you know, I always thought that what I was going to be is this. The reason that people never move an idea to reality is they don't take the time to work on useful truth. They don't take the time to say, how do the numbers work? They don't take the time to say, well, actually, if this is true, then what else is true? They don't take the time to be able to say, let me map step one, two, three, four, five, six to get me in the game. With most people's idea, what they want to be able to do is the idea is that they want to stand on the podium holding a winner's medal, whatever that idea is. Before you can hold a winner's medal, you've got to get in the game. And that's where people miss. So, for example, let's even take the the profession of of, of speaking. Mm -hmm. The the world right now wants to be a a speaker, an Instagram influencer, or some form of micro-celebrity in some way, an author, etc. And what they jump to in their mind is the finish line. Now, you know, I talk to people in the, you know, in the professional speaking space. Like, if you want to be a speaker, here are some things that need to be useful truths to you. Is firstly, you got to get really good at your craft, and the only way you do that is without a paying audience. You know, you got to do the work before the work so that when you get paid to do the work that you're ready to be able to deliver in that level that means that you're worthy of your fee. Not only that, it is a job that is largely lonely. The only person that is going to be uh, alongside you cheering you on for the bulk of the race is yourself, so get used to that part. Mm-hmm. The highs and lows of being awesome on stage and then being in an airport on your own waiting after your three-hour flight delay, that is a part of the job. Be aware of the fact that actually let's look at the downsides of things before we just look at the upside of things. Yeah. 
so I think you know this this is what I ask people to be able to dive into in their masses before they lean into any big idea is yes optimism is key I think we want to be able to believe that something is going to work out great but if you don't take the time to look at useful truth too then what happens is when a barrier jumps up it hits you like a surprise and it shouldn't you know that that, that shouldn't have been a surprise to you in most sets of circumstances because the clues to it existing were pretty easy to be able to find out ahead of time yeah in talking about that, if you can't work it out on paper, it's not going to work out in real life. And I have some distinct experiences in my own uh, businesses of, of some that failed that I, they, I didn't try to work them out on paper and they never would have, but I didn't, I had again, blind, blind optimism for sure. Today I know better, uh, but there are ideas sometimes, like you said, it's, they're not, they're not new inventions, but they're, you know, a, a fair degree, uh, a few degrees off of something that's out there. And, and I know, I know that it can happen. I know that it'll work. I, however, am not, uh, I don't know enough broad spectrum business wise to work it out fully on paper, but now I've learned to bring that idea forward to the right people and have them help me do that. We have a new company now and it's a, it's in the financial arena. I'm not good. I, I stink at finance. It's not my arena at all. The big vision of the business, uh, fits a need and is, is a great idea, but the financial part, I don't know. First person we hired a CFO, he was able to help us work it out on paper. Son of a gun. It absolutely works. The confidence now to go forward in that is dramatic, but I just wanted to bring that because I think we got a lot of folks who have that idea. They're in the solopreneur arena and they think, and Oh let, my gosh, let's jump into that a little, right? Oh, Cause please. you just raised the point about the fact that, you know, you hired a CFO, et cetera, to many that could become a paralyzing fear at the front end that says, okay, I'm not going to start because, and if we've got people listening in right now that say, you know, I, you know, I want to start a business is why not start with three levels of success? Like you've got the utopian. If I'm going to hit the podium up here and then I'm going to have all my birthdays, this thing's going to be awesome. It's going to be the most amazing version that it could be. I've got the kind of core. Well, actually if it's doing fine, it's right here. And then I've got, well, worst case scenario, what's the bottom level of success that I would accept. And more often than not, what many people can look at is if they get clear on that bottom version of success, that becomes way more in reach. Let's just say that little Sally wants to open a, uh, a hairdressing salon. Oh. What she does right now is she works as a stylist in a local salon and that she's doing some great work and her clients love her and her boss loves her. She's been doing it for seven years, but the shift pattern she's working right now is incongruent with her family relationships. And she feels like she's at the top of the tree in the ceiling and she wants to do something different. What happens is she gets her friends saying things like, you should start a salon. You should open a salon. And what you should do is that you should do your own thing. You should be your own boss. And without any realization attached to it, the next thing that she does is that she goes and, and, and signs a lease on a six-month reduced rent, et cetera, that was a former salon that has the equipment in place that hasn't been launched, right? Opens the doors. There's a big fancy ribbon cutting. And they, the Chamber of Commerce show up to be able to announce this new business. Mm -hmm. And three days in, she's like, where's the flood of customers? Mm -hmm and wondering where they could be. Instead, if she looked at and looked at useful truth and said, well, how does this work? She could say, well, I work five days a week in the salon that I'm working right now. I wonder if I could build a book of customers on my own without sabotaging the customer base that are already coming into this salon. I could do this with some integrity. I wonder if I can find some people who are, who are local to where I live right now, that on the two days a week that I don't work in the salon, that would um, allow me to come and cut their hair for a fee. I wonder if that would be true. And I wonder if in the next six months, what I could do is I could build myself a, a book of maybe 20, 30, 40 clients 
that um, would see me on those days or see me in the week. And I wonder what they would pay, right? They pay $75 in the salon with all that treatment. For me to make it more viable to them, I wonder if they'd pay $55 if I did it in their home. And what about products? How many products would I need? Well, I'd need this number of products, et cetera. And what about the gas in order to be able to get there in the car, et cetera? So, so let me just say, well, what I could do is I could do four of these on a Saturday. I could do four of these on a Sunday. I could do it between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. I could still be home to be able to take the kids on the school run or, or to get to help them with their homework, or I could still be back to be able to do dinner. Between 10 and 4, I could do four. I could do eight over every weekend. I could still maybe get two in in some evenings in the week. That would be 10 customers. That's 10 customers at $55 each per week that's 550 dollars per week that's 1100 every two weeks that's 2500 bucks a month see if i was making 2500 bucks on my side hustle alongside what i was doing in the salon right now and i did that for six months or 12 months would that give me the confidence that i could open the salon well my rent on the salon is 1500 a month well i'd have 2500 a month on rolling revenue already from my side business that could allow me to be able to fund and build a reputation of being able to bring those people in so it gives you that stepping stone in. And that's what I want more people to think about is, is, is what is the job you have to do alongside the job you already have to be able to fuel the stepping stone for you to be able to create the business that you would like. And, and this, is, this is the part that people miss. If you look at anything about my career today is I have proactively reinvented myself around 13 times in a 23-year career. Mm -hmm. You know, a genuine level up, a genuine level up. And the only way you do that is by always uh, running two races. You've got the job you're running and the business you're building. You've then got the business you're running and the business you're building. You've got the business you're running and the business you're building. And they permanently step as you go. Um, and I think this is how more people should look to be able to live their life if they're looking for an upward trajectory is to say, well, okay, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to be great at the thing that I've already promised to do. Yep. And I'm going to carve out some time to proactively work on where my next step of reinvention is that I'm going to step into. Once I get that 80-20 becomes 70-30, now I can then take the confident leap to go all into the new thing. And the new thing then doesn't become the thing that I'm building. It becomes the thing that I'm doing, which then frees up some more space to say, and what next? Yeah. You just, uh, folks, you just got a, a really boil down masterclass on useful truth, which again is right out of the book, exactly where to start. And you just did it on the fly. What you, I know you at least gave one example kind of like that, where you ran the numbers and said, this is how you work it out on paper. And folks, this is, I just want them to hear, this is not a, an 80 page business plan. This is a simplified version, which again, you are, you have some mastery of simplifying the message down, which is why you do what you do. And on that note, when we talk about motivation, back to where we started the conversation, we talk about motivation. What is that thing you gave again, a, a simplistic statement, but I, I don't even know why flip the paradigm around a little bit to ask. And this is again, going to the core of motivation in you. It's a chapter nine. And you quoted this. If you do not know why you are doing it, then why are you doing it? Which is, again, it's such a core motive to the folks who are looking out here, wanting to do something, this thing, languishing in it, you haven't taken action on it, or do you have, and now it's just a big ball of mess to step back and go, why, if you don't know why you're doing it, why are you doing it? Now, I've gotten better at doing that in my business life, in my career. 
I've been enacting that in an aspect of, you know, self-care maybe and some boundaries in my personal life of where I just tend to be a yes man and try to fix everything for everybody, do everything for everybody and then step back and go, why am I doing this? Can I do it with a good heart? So I've been doing it on that standpoint. And if I can't being honest with that, with that person and saying that, but you, but on a, on a big effort level to simply say, if you do not know why you are doing it, then why are you doing it? I think a lot of folks will find they do not know. And I would say that's the red flag. That's where to start or end. Would you say? Yeah, it should almost be like a, like a barometer test. It's, mm-hmm. it's some form of way of just checking your pulse at any given point in time. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I mess this up all the time. I might have known why I was doing it. And then I'm two thirds of the way down the river and I'm in the current. Like, I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. I'm just trying to survive in the current. And I have to ask myself that question again. And it becomes a realignment. How do I get the paddle back on the kayak in a way that says that what I'm looking to be able to do is to steer this to my course. And and, the, the struggle with building anything is that when you're doing a great job of it, you get the benefit of momentum. Mm -hmm. That momentum can carry you in all kinds of directions. And more often than not, that direction isn't the one that you set. It's the one that somebody else set for you. And you need a bit of that, you know, and, and I think, you know, you know, Jim Rowan said it best, right. In, in terms of, you know, the, the setting of the sail is the thing that we're in control of, not the direction of the wind. Like that, that thing is true in, in all of our lives is that, is, is that we have to be able to create that recalibration at time. And I ask myself that question all the time. If I don't know why I'm doing it, then why am I doing it? Like my fuel to get to where I've wanted to get to today has often been a a little bit of a chase of something behind me. You know, I've I've wanted to get away from a financial issue. I've wanted to be able to make something work for my family. I've wanted to be able to, you know, take on the responsibility of somebody else's burden and fix it through my views. And, And then you get to a point of being comfortable on certain things. And you're like, why am I taking this plane again? Why am I working in this industry? Why am I taking that gig over that gig? Why did I agree to write this book? Why am I in a 90 minute phone call with this person? Like, what is my reason behind it? And you have to check yourself back in again to create new boundaries. Otherwise, what you do is you get full. Like if we're on the quest for more, there comes a point where more becomes too much. Yeah. And, and that, that boundary is forever changing too. So I, I, I don't want anybody listening in right now to think that I've figured this out. It's that I found ways to help me figure stuff out when I find myself where the, the, the water is overlapping. And I, I like the metaphor of, of, of understanding that, that change is always coming. And if you view change as a tidal wave, then, you know, a tidal wave coming at you could do one of three things, right? One is it can leave you in a, in a soggy mess on the floor, like dripping wet. The other is you could pull out a surfboard, have a boatload of fun. And the third is you could use it to power a generator that fuels an entire city or a nation or an army full of people. And, and I cannot stop the fact that a tidal wave is coming. It's always coming. Change is upon us regardless. Some of that change we create control. Some of that change is, is circumstantial and external for us. The only thing we can choose is, am I pulling a surfboard out? Am I going to let it wash over me? Or am I going to use it to power the next chapter of growth? And and that's what we fight. It feels like a great message. What we hear continually in our uh, continually busy culture and lives is being present. It's a, it's a question for being present in what you're doing. Well, you, in all your social media, in all your, primary branding, the headline banner says, change your words, change your world. 
Uh, so I am, uh, uh, you know, the term logophile, I'm a lover of words. I appreciate that. And Good. you, when you started off when I, the first book that I looked into was exactly what to say and you start, well, you know, let, let's go back to words before I get in there, back to the power of words, which you come to a lot. And you talked about that and coming on this show that you wanted to help people have better conversations. And you talked earlier about it can sound tactical, but of course it is. Anything of, of value is generally going to be, uh, you're going to have a tactic. You're going to have a strategy. I know some people, and you meant you kind of, you, you spoke to it. They struggle with that sounding inauthentic as well. Okay. So balance that of saying, okay, in a conversation, which again, that's sales. That's, you know, if you're speaking in front of a crowd, if that's just a talk with uh, a friend that you want to influence or an associate. So we've got this of saying you, you need to know ahead of time. You talked about that. The worst time to think about what you want to say is right there in the moment. So having a game plan, but also being authentic. And I feel like people tend to uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater with that. So how can you do that? And yet, well, I'll let you reconcile it. Um, well, well, let's play with that authentic piece in the first place is I'm guessing that a number of people that are listening in right now have heard the words, will you marry me? Yeah. Now, if you've heard the words, will you marry me? Did you ever question the authenticity within that ask? No. Even though it was a pre-programmed set of words that somebody had identified is the most concise way that you could ask somebody for their hand in marriage. Yes. What happened is because the words were already pre-prescribed, it allowed you to bring authenticity towards the moment because you could be 100% present within it. Okay. See, if what you're thinking about in a moment is what exactly should I say, then what you're not is you're not authentic and you're not present because what you are is just somewhere else. You're off the beat of the music. There's another thing to consider, though, as well, is yes, I spend a bulk of my world and life on, on helping people articulate better word choices towards scenarios. And this leads people to think towards things like scripting. And there's a lot of people who are like, what's the perfect script for that? And then they go, oh, I don't want scripts because they make me sound canned or scripts are inauthentic or scripts are um, don't give me the freedom to be able to deal with the uniqueness in the moment. For most of us in our lives, we have somewhere like 20, 30, 50 crucial conversations that aren't only just crucial or critical, they're also repetitive. That's what most of us have, particularly in our professional lives, some form of conversation that repeats itself on loop. Mm -hmm. And for those same groups of people is if they have a written communication that repeats itself on loop, my guess is that what they've done is they've got a word document that they can copy paste. They've created an email autoresponder for it. They've created some form of written response that allows them to deal with that more efficiently. I'm asking people to do the same with word choices. What I'm asking them to do the same with word choices of is to think about the outcome they're looking to try and achieve as opposed to the words that they're looking to be able to say back in the other direction. What is it you're looking for this to be able to go on to be able to achieve? And the simple belief that I have that won't go out of fashion regardless of technology is that questions create conversations. Conversations lead to relationships. Relationships create opportunities. Opportunities lead to action. Starts with questions. People want more action from people, but they forget that action starts with questions because mm -hmm. those questions create conversations. Conversations create relationships. Relationships lead to opportunities. Opportunities lead to actions, decisions, sales, whatever you choose to call it. And it means that we should become way more competent in our ability to be able to ask intelligent questions to be able to lead a conversation because it's the person who's asking the questions that's in control of a conversation. Let me just prove how badly we get this wrong. Now, there's a question that's asked almost everybody every single day. Let's talk about being authentic for a second. How many times a day do you get asked, hey, how are you? Too many. And how do you respond? Fine. Right? Yep. Which is typically a lie. Mm-hmm. 
right? Whether you're awesome, whether you're having a bad day, whether you, you know, you're busy, like, like we've learned to actually believe that inauthentic conversation is the norm. Mm -hmm. If what happened is if I picked up the phone to you and said, Hey, how are you? And you had the ability to be able to answer that truthfully. My guess is that we'd have a more meaningful conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's, we've learned to become so efficient with language that we forget to be effective. Yeah. See, I think we should have scripts going into a situation. I recently recorded an eight-hour program um, without script, without slides, to a, a room full of people in uh, off-Broadway in a theater for an Audible original. One tape was going to be recorded and archived in time forever. And people were like, how did you do that without a script? I'm like, I had a script. They said, no, but I didn't see you refer to a script once. I said, I know. Here's the thing is I wrote the script. I wrote the script 11 years ago. I've been working the script for a thousand presentations over the last decade. Yeah. I knew that information inside out. They said, well, it didn't look like that you needed to refer to any piece of material. I said, that's the point. See, when I knew my words, I could be fully present in the moment. It allowed me to deal with all the things that happen that are off script because I could come back to it at yeah. those moments where it matters most. And if people are fearful of scripts, have you ever seen a movie and cried? Yes. It was just an actor reading a script. Yeah. Wasn't real, but we believed it to be real. Why? Because the actor had to embody somebody brand new to be able to deliver something that could evoke the emotion in other people. What I ask people to do is to craft their own scripts. That's where the authenticity comes in. If I give you mine, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. British accent might be a little struggling for you. Mm -hmm. But if I give you the tools to be able to say, well, actually, let me learn what works, why it works, then what happens is, is you have the ingredients to go bake your perfect recipes ahead of time. My guess is that everybody here right now has common and critical conversations that happen just as frequently as the how are you question yeah. that you respond to just as badly as the majority of people do respond to that kind of question yeah. that don't create conversations, that don't build relationships, but then don't go on to create the opportunities. They say they want more opportunities, but what they're forgetting is that the words are the things that create the opportunities. Let me give you a simple response that happens in my world. Now, common question I get asked as a professional speaker is people pick up the phone to me or they reach out and say, hey, we'd like you to speak. Are you available? And what's your fee? Fairly reasonable request, right? Are you available? What's your fee? Now, if I respond to the answer to that question without thinking about what I want to achieve ahead of time, my guess is I'm going to end up in a cul-de-sac or a dead end. Hmm. Instead, what I say is, firstly, absolutely, I'm available. I'll mark a hold on my calendar. What is it about me and my work that makes you think I might be a good fit for your event? Zip. That question goes on to create a conversation. That conversation leads towards a relationship. That relationship creates an opportunity. It also feeds me back a dozen frames that mean that when I get to the point of positioning a fee, it has context. And your content never has value unless it has context ahead of time. So much of the work through exactly what to say and much of the work that I do through word choices is all about giving people the ability to create frameworks for them to insert their brilliance. Yes. Without the framework, the brilliance sounds like it's bragging. A framework is one of my favorite terminologies uh, because we fill in all the blanks. It takes the, uh, takes the learning out of it. I mean, these interviews that I do, these conversations, this conversation that we're having, uh, I've been told even by people close to me, it's amazing, Kevin, how you go and you ask a question and you get an answer, whatever. And then you always have the next question ready to go. And they think that I'm just that smart. And I spent, I don't know how long, how many hours on this sketching out the direction I felt to go sketching out the questions now, of course, but that's it. It's framework because I've skipped a bunch of them. I've morphed a lot of them. I've thrown some out 
and uh, and here we are. But it came from that scripting and to what you talked about right there. How many people have put out a feeler for five different speakers they think would be relevant? They did it to you. They did it to some others. They asked that same question. The other ones answered it. Uh, appropriately, just right there, gave the, gave the, am I available? Gave the, the time you using your scripted words, the ones you do, you threw it out there as a framework and it then opened the door for that conversation. And that's a, a sales tactic. I mean, it's a brilliant sales tactic, but it brings some color to life as yes. well, right? We create an actual reality to be able to discuss as opposed to an analytical scenario to discuss. And I want to identify something else for the listeners yes. that, that you do remarkably well, right? You've done the work ahead of time for an interview to consider the 17 different ways that this could go. You have enough content prepared in front of you through research that says, yes, this is a 45, 50 minute interview, but but you've got probably three hours worth of potential fodder to be able to go down. And you've got yeah. a choose your own adventure that says, if it goes this way, I can lean into that more. If it goes that way, I can lean into that. more. Right. Your ability to be able to actually use that framework or set of tools you've done in research ahead of time is your ability to do an often overlooked thing. And that is listen. Mm. Now, I've been interviewed on podcasts somewhere like a thousand times. Hmm. The thing that I see happen too often is people are solely focused on their agenda of asking their questions to be able to get through that the conversation doesn't flow. It doesn't serve the listener the other end of it because the host failed to listen. Hmm. So don't miss your 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 unconscious ability of, of being able to say, well, actually, what I'm doing is I'm following the beat of the conversation. And I'm choosing my next direction of questioning based on the information that I just heard, as opposed to your predetermined agenda. Right. And the point I want to make for our listeners right now on that is, is yes, you need to be able to prepare your conversations ahead of time so that you can be present in the moment and not to say what I've done is I've decided the way that this entire conversation is going to go. It's so I've decided the ways that this conversation could go. So I've controlled as many of the controllables as possible that gives me the ability to be present. Yeah. Well, well put. Thank you. Uh, on these, you know, on that, on the preparation, the thing, the sore spot I know people are feeling that you spoke to in this aspect, again, of just change your words, change your world. You said often the decision between a customer choosing you over someone else is your ability to know exactly what to say and when to say it. And how often I want everybody to listen for those of you who have an offering out there, you have a product, you have a service. It is great. You are a great provider. You love it. You believe in it. And yet you're not getting the traction. And how many of you are irritated that somebody who you feel has a lesser offering and they're succeeding and you're frustrated at that. And it comes back to this. And I don't know how to put it better. I'll let you take a shot at it, that it does. We have to be good at our craft. We have to, to have a great offering yet. There is a, I don't know a better term than there's a game. Uh, there's a, there's a strategy. We'll, we'll call it. Okay. Well, there's right. But there is, and I have seen people get frustrated at that, get bitter with that. And, uh, I'm not going to play the game. I'm going to be authentic and they're going to go down in flames and we don't get to benefit from their great offering. And we're back to, you know, from a business standpoint, we're brand, back to branding and positioning and colors and words and videos and all these things that we do that I understand that frustration because I have some things I think it is a better mousetrap. Come on folks. Can't you see that? And let's, yeah, uh, no, let's they see can't. if we can unpack this a little. Please. Is, 
if I asked an audience of a thousand people whether they wanted to be good at something, to be better at something, or to do their best at something, what do you think most people would pick? I want to be the best. Right. Now, that is a belief that I think is wrong. Okay. And the reason I think that belief is wrong is that we've all had periods of time in our life where we've said something to somebody like, look, don't worry, you were trying your best. Mm-hmm. And we've known that that was actually a mistruth. See, when we've said the words to somebody, don't worry, you were trying your best, we know deep in our hearts they were not trying their best. Yeah. We've also done the same thing to ourselves. There's been a point in our lives, and it might have been as trivial as like the point where you were learning to tie your shoelaces. And your parents were trying to encourage you to be able to do it. And they were saying, look, it's easy. And other kids can do it. And you were going, I'm just trying my best, all right? Still yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. It just cut out. Let me, let me make a, let me make a timestamp. Yeah. Okay. You just pick, you can just pick up. Yeah. And, and so there's this vision of, 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 we've even said to ourselves at points in our life where we were, we were maybe doing something as trivial as tying our bootlaces and we couldn't do it with all the encouragement from our parents that were saying things like this is easy. And we, we just proclaim the words like I'm trying my best. And all the time that we are talking in this language of, of trying our best, we are creating a ceiling for progress and a ceiling for growth and something that we are always going to live below. And we've trained ourselves to believe that this terminology of the best in something is something you will never achieve. Hmm. If you take that scenario of trying to do your shoelaces, it wasn't until you shift the focus away from best and towards better that actually you were then able to be able to complete that task. Not only complete that task, go way beyond that task to be able to achieve other levels of brilliance. The focus that we should all be at at any point is if we are frustrated at us not achieving the results that we would like. Forget best practice, forget trying your best. Say, what can I do today to be better than I was yesterday? That's it. What can I do today to be better than I was yesterday? If we're losing in our business, understand that there are probably three reasons why you're losing. You're losing to somebody who's telling a better story than you. Not they got a better product, a better service or anything. They're telling a better story. If it's not they're telling a better story, my guess is they're asking better questions than you. And if they're not asking better questions, they're providing a better experience around the thing than you are. So if you can look to say, well, actually, how do I create a better story? How do I ask better questions? And how do I create a better experience? And then you look at all the actions that could come off the back of me asking you those three questions. My guess is you're going to write yourself a list of things that are completely within your control that can move your deliverables within your business practice from a five out of 10 to an eight out of 10 without you having to take the slightest bit of worry about what your competition are up to and can keep you busy for the next 12 months making progress. Okay. I, I'm going to repeat what you just said for everybody to hear that we're talking about best, that we do have that perspective of if I'm going to start XYZ business, I've got to go out and I've got to be the best. Or if I am the best, that should sell me. And what you just said is we see it every single day. My gosh, look at the the ads on TV. Look at the Super Bowl ads. None of them claim to be best. Half the time, they don't even tell you what the thing does. They give no result, anything. They violate what we would think is every beneficial value you should be communicating. But they come back and they do those three things. They are telling a story. Well, first off, they are telling a story. And if they're telling it better, asking better questions and giving a better experience. I, I'll tell you, uh, Phil, I have a business that we have just done a soft launch on and we did that. And it is, it is in the, it is in a best category. I'm going to, I'm going to arrogantly, it is in a best category. We did not do some of those things. Well, uh, specifically the story 
We did questions pretty well. The story and the experience, we did not do well. And I, I'm going to use that word again. I'll, I'll say naively. That's better than arrogantly. I thought that we could, it was big enough. It was good enough that we could bypass that at least for our initial surge and came back and we got the response back from our folks. They said, we, we get it that it's incredible, but blah, 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 blah. And we found out we did not tell the story well, and we did not give a better experience. So we're back to the drawing board to do just that. And I love the way that you put that because yeah, we focus on if we're best, I've heard it a hundred times with business people. If they've got the best product that should sell it. If I've got the, I'll, I'll take it even to, I'll get spiritual with this. People who say, I have something that I think God anointed me with. And I've seen them fail because in the, you know, even biblically we have a finite amount. If we have a few miracles, God does most of the time he's saying, seek wisdom, seek counsel. And that's what you just showcased. And just pick up one more thing on this, on this potential sabotage that can come from belief around the best Okay, is best is the fuel for arrogance. Hmm. Arrogance is not going to get us anywhere particularly. Also, if you're the best, you're alone. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're the best, you're at the finish line. That's a finite destination. Hmm. Where actually what we are all on is we're all on a perpetual journey that says, okay, where does our next level of growth come from? And, you know, if we're not growing, we're dying in whatever our definition of growth is. If the quest is permanently better and you can be surrounded by other people who share the same quest as you, that's a fun life to live in. If you stand there arrogantly at the top of the mountain saying, I'm the best, look what happens. Somebody wants to shoot you off the top of the mountain and they will. Like in today's world, there is enough choice that if you want to be out of pride with arrogance of the fact that you are the best at anything, somebody's going to come and steal it. And then the thing you attached your identity to is now gone. Hmm. If you attach your identity to better, nobody can steal it from you. Well, okay. There, there's, there's some, we've had multiple things where I want to say that right there, folks, is the price of admission. You need to repeat and listen to this show again and take some notes. I, you know, I do, I feel remiss though, if I don't coming back to words, coming back to the strategy of that. And folks, this is very Ziegler-esque. You know, if you read secrets of closing the sale, I mean, it is a, I, again, I like the word framework. This is a framework. It's not a strategy to be robotic and say X, Y, Z, but it's a framework of a question that will open the door for a relationship, as you talked about, just as your response to people who ask you for a speaking engagement. Uh, the very first chapter in, and I want you to explain it so people get a quick, again, another, another quick masterclass before we, before we tail off here and exactly what to say your chapter one, it's just such a great example of a statement of using, utilizing this. I'm not sure if it's for you. Um, I have, I literally, when I read that, Phil, it's probably two months ago, I had a specific offering in another business and I went and rewrote it uh, right after that because it, it just makes perfect sense. It, so just do, do me a favor and explain that for everyone. Just sure. this, is a, this is a teaser, I would say, for what the book is filled with. So, so let's go back to a point I made earlier on in the interview yeah. that one of the biggest reasons that people fail to ask for the things that they want in life is because they're fearful of rejection. Mm-hmm. I figured I'd start the book exactly what to say with giving people a rejection-free opening formula and with a precise set beautiful. of magic words. And what magic words are and what the book is full of is, is words that talk straight towards the subconscious brain. Subconscious brain is powerful in decision-making because it works like an autopilot. It doesn't have maybe, and maybe is one of the biggest things that stands in our way of conversational success is people stuck on procrastination. So the ability to talk towards the part of somebody's brain that only has yes and no outputs means that we can assist people in the decision-making process more effectively. 
if I wanted somebody to consider an idea of mine and I wanted them to consider it in a completely rejection-free way, I might preface that idea with the words, I'm not sure if it's for you. See, if I say the words, I'm not sure if it's for you ahead of time, the little voice does two things. Your little voice inside your head says, well, firstly, um, I'll be the judge of that. Hmm. It takes full responsibility for what's going to happen next. The second thing it does is curiosity is piqued. It says, what is it? Makes you lean in, makes you want to have more appetite towards hearing what the thing is. In its simplest of forms is instead of you projecting an idea on somebody that could be perceived as pushy, this is a tool or a technique that could allow you to be able to present an idea to somebody where it's pulley. And I know that's not a real word, but we're going to use it as a real word right now, is just pull somebody into it. Mm -hmm. The three-letter word on the end of this, that word but, also is used here on purpose. So I say I'm not sure if it's for you, but. The word but should typically be avoided in most conversations because what it does is it negates what came prior to it. If I said to you today, look, I've really enjoyed the show. It's been fun being on here and our time has been well spent, but... Right, you're only interested in what follows the bar. Exactly, 100%. Correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would avoid it in most set of circumstances, but here I'm deliberately using it as an eraser. Hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but uh, have you got 15 minutes for us to sit down and share some ideas about what we could do as add value to your business? Try to say no. What happens is it becomes the key to a door to the conversation you really want to have. Hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but we've got some great ways that we could demonstrate some cost savings versus what you're currently doing with blank, blank, and blank. It's a lot harder to say no to. What everybody looks to be able to do when they're succeeding in the area of sales is they look to embellish the option of yes. What almost all of my strategies are based on is saying, how do I minimize the option of choosing no? I want to destroy the option of no. I don't want to embellish the option of yes. That way we can intact act with integrity. See, if I said, I'm not sure if it's for Euro, but I've got some great ways that what we could do is demonstrate some savings on some things that you're currently spending on when would be a good time for us to sit down for 15 minutes and discuss it? Mm-hmm. You can't say, no, I don't want the conversation. The only thing that you can decide is when is the right time to spend the 15 minutes on it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an aspect of the assumptive close. Uh, Correct. Which is my favorite. And, and so much of what we should operate in, in, in conversational excellence is, is to throw out this ideas of right and wrong. We don't want black and we don't want white. We want to play in the 50 shades of gray in the middle. And that's where, you know, negotiations can happen. And whether that negotiation is getting somebody to choose you, your product or service, or whether it's just getting them to understand your view about politics, religion, gun control, whatever, like some of the fun things that can happen. And this is one thing I've enjoyed hugely about traveling around, even just the differences of the United States of America, is when you can enter in a conversation where you're not looking to be right, you're just looking to be able to explore the conversation then what can happen is you can shift somebody's opinion within that sliding scale of gray. If what you're trying to be is like, I am right. If I'm right, that means that you have to be wrong. Nobody wants to admit to being wrong. If I allow my opinion to move and their opinion to move at the same time, then what we do is that my friends is growth. Yeah. That is acceptance. That is something that I believe very, very strongly in should happen more so. I would su- I would summarize that the book exactly what to say with that it is a framework as you said to opening the door to explore more of a conversation instead of bring it to an absolute yes no black and white and again back to your uh, paramount quote in, in essence you know, the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment you are 
saying that? How many times do we come to a conversation? I think, you know, if anywhere we do this at all, it may be in sales because we've learned a little bit, but otherwise uh, we, it's a free for all. And yeah, we are not present. I like that. The, the amount of time that we spend bumbling for the right thing to say, as opposed to having, again, a framework, not a script, as you said, but having a framework uh, folks, again, both, both the books, uh, if you are, <laughs> if you are in sales, which is Zig says, everybody is. is in sales and you want better relationships that open that door to exploration that serve others. Uh, exactly what to say is, well, and that's the testimonies to it. It's one of the most succinct, helpful books ever. The exactly where to start though is, again, it brought me to where we started in this conversation of getting to some of the root issues of, I'd say personal development, I'd say personal trajectory if you want to do something different than the norm. Uh, man, I just, I'm grateful that you took the time to be with us, Phil, and that you do what you do, that you spend those lonely days on the road to bring us this message. Uh, it's a great benefit. The moment that Carrie Wilkerson said, we got to have you on the show, and I got the books, uh, I agreed we had to have you on the show. Here we have, thank you for uh, doing your art. Thank you for being with us. Huge pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Friends, this is a significant perspective on communication and influence. You can go forth from right now in your life engaging in thousands of conversations and be better heard, be better understood, uh, have more influence. And either you prepare and drastically increase this success in your life or you don't. But you're here to do that, of course, and take action. So again, look for Phil's books at Amazon or wherever you get your books, exactly what to say, exactly how to sell, and exactly where to start or his three lead books. Uh, or again, just type in Phil Jones exactly and there you'll come up with all of it. Coming up next in show 724, are your current circumstances a result of your personal choices? Well, that show title right there is volatile. Uh, it's a volatile question that will ultimately shape your life trajectory. I mean, all of us have made good and bad decisions that have resulted in making our circumstances better or worse. Well, hopefully we take responsibility for these decisions we know that we made. Well, but then there are the circumstances in our lives we did not choose and cannot control. They happen to us. I mean, a hard childhood, abuse, car wrecks, toxic people, job loss, handicap, and so much more. They were not our fault. Uh, and we are not to blame, but how do you let those issues affect the rest of your lives? I mean, that's a decision we do all get to make. So for this episode, I posted this question to the Ziegler audience. I asked, do you honestly believe that your current circumstances are a result of your personal choices? What followed was about, it was about 55 at this point, I think of possibly the most lengthy comments we've ever had and some pretty healthy debate here. You may receive more freedom and empowerment from this show and topic than anything else we've covered. Well, till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. <music>